Wealth Tactic Rebels, ingenious tactics to accumulate wealth for people who see things differently. Welcome to another discussion with Wealth Tactic Rebels, the podcast for people who see things differently. I'm your host, Kevin Dumont, and I've been thinking differently in the wealth field for over 10 years. And uh, today, we're joined by Thomas Siaka of Siaka Law. Thomas, great to have you here today. Great. Thanks so much, Kevin. Fantastic. So Thomas is an expert in estate planning and, and wills and you know things of that nature um, uh, with Siaka Law here in uh, based in New York City. And, you know, I'm going to let him introduce himself and, and talk about, you know, what he does. Sure. Thanks. So uh, this firm specializes exclusively in the trust and estates field, which means we basically do three things. Uh, first, we do estate planning, which can range from very simple to very complex, depending on what someone is attempting to accomplish with their estate planning. We also do probate, which is the process after someone dies where the court validates a will. And uh, an executor needs to collect assets and distribute them out to creditors or beneficiaries. Uh, and finally, we also do estate litigation, which is something that I really love to do. That's when uh, someone challenges a will on the basis that the person who wrote the will lacked the capacity to write it or had uh, undue influence exercised over them by somebody else. Uh, so, so we get involved in all those will contests in the surrogate's court which is what we call our probate courts here in New York. Right. It sounds like they could be challenging. <laughs> it's challenging because you're dealing with a very complex system of law that not a lot of people work with. I would say probably there's less than three or four dozen really good trust and estates litigators within the city of New York. Yeah. And in a city that has probably several hundred thousand attorneys, that's saying something. Right. right. Um, but it's also something that you're dealing where where people's emotions are running high. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of times people feel honor-bound to do something or to question someone else's motives, and especially when you're dealing with a parent who dies and leaves money to children in unequal shares, sometimes you're dealing with these brother-sister disputes that have been percolating for decades, and this is just the latest <laughs> skirmish in, uh, in an ongoing war. Yeah, wow. And you can see how that could be interesting. It's almost like um, like a TV drama show there. You see those, like, uh, Law and Order or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I used to refer to this as the Melrose Place of the Law, but as, as uh, my clients get younger and I'm younger and I get older and older, that, that reference becomes a lot less relevant <laughs> and it depresses me significantly. <laughs> well, we won't go there too much then. <laughs> so, estate planning and proper, you know, you know, wills and, and, and trusts and things are, are very, very important for, of course, people's wealth sometimes during their life and very important for after their life and, and what they're going to be leaving, uh, what kind of legacy they're leaving to people. Can you talk a little bit more about the importance of the estate plan that you do and how it affects people? Sure. To me, an estate plan comprises a couple of different things. First, it will include some sort of document that transfers assets upon death. Sure. Almost always a will for some people, a trust of some sort is also appropriate. Right. But it also includes things such as advanced directives, which are a series of documents called the power of attorney or a health care proxy or a living will. And those right. document names vary a little from state to state. But basically, these are a battery of documents that uh, one would sign 
to appoint someone to make medical or financial decisions for them during their lifetime if they if there came a time when they lost capacity to do so. Right. So what's involved in doing something like that, and, and what is a typical estate planning client like, is sort of an interesting question. I, I always tell people there's no such thing as a typical estate planning client. My clients really range the uh, uh, gamut. You know, I have people who come in who are young parents and they feel that they need to have a will in order to protect their children in case something happens to both of them. And I have clients who are nearing the end of their life, either because they believe they're at an age where the end is in sight or that they've gotten, unfortunately, some bad medical news and they're trying to get their affairs in order. I see clients who look forward to writing wills. I look forward, or I, I see clients who dread writing wills. I once had a client who, uh, who was visibly shaking as we talked about her will. But at the end of the day, um, every client that I've ever worked with is always glad at the end of the day that they've gotten it done. It's sort of like yeah. going to the gym in the snow. You may not look forward to going, But when you come back, you feel like you have this great sense of accomplishment, and you're really glad that you did it. Yeah, it's true. That's true. And I can relate to that. Yeah. So I grew up. uh, I grew up in the snow, and I (laughs) going to work out in the snow was was something I had to do. Yes. (laughs) It's the same thing. Some days I went, and the days that I did, I was happy. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, but uh, just like there's no typical estate planning client, there's also no such thing as a typical estate plan. A lot of times people will come and sit in my office and they'll say, Tom, what do people usually do in these situations? Mm-hmm. And that's that's not an answer I like. I say, look, you know, with, with some very broad parameters, with an estate plan, you can do just about anything that you would like. Right. This should be a personal document that the clients and the attorney work on together and really reflects the client's personal wishes. So right, just right. taking something off the rack because that's what, you know, a young married couple in this situation should do mm. is often not the right answer. Right, right. Yeah, because it's much more tailored. So it's, it's the difference between buying, as you say, off the rack or going to a tailor. And oh, correct. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, a good estate plan is not something that someone does in a 20-minute session. Whether you're talking about buying a a literal off-the-rack form online, or if you're talking about coming in to sit with an attorney and say, look, I want to leave here in 45 minutes with a signed will, you know, that if that happens, you're probably doing yourself a disservice. Right, right. Right. And it's not going to be complete at that point. It's not as well thought out and planned. Correct. To me, a good, you know, or at least the way I do things here, to me, a good estate plan comprises of an initial consultation which will take between 60 and 90 minutes. During that initial consultation, we talk about what the client's goals are. Why are they writing a will? If they have an existing will or a state plan, why is it that they're choosing to revise it? Uh, We'll talk a little bit about their assets, as your listeners are familiar with in the wealth management world. And those people who are investors, a lot of times they need to coordinate their assets that don't name beneficiaries with those that do, like their retirement accounts, life insurance policies, things like that, to make sure everything dovetails together. We talk about their family tree, whether or not they choose to include them. 
And then we sketch out what a basic plan might look like. Right. From there, it takes me a couple of weeks to put together drafts, and clients would get copies of drafts with a letter from me explaining all the bells and whistles and calling their attention to anything that may need further consideration from them, which may be, hey, now that I put this on paper, it just doesn't look right. Is this what you really want to do? Or when we met, you couldn't think who would be your executor if you given that any more thought. Yeah. You know, and then the clients would spend some time reading it and we have a conversation about the drafts and then they would come in and sign it. So there's really a lot of thought that goes into it on both my end and the client's. Right. Yeah. Sounds like it. So it's not a people that they just come in and talk to you and it's done. It's not like that. You, it sounds like you go through several meetings before you might get to a somewhat finished draft. Yeah, and, you know, I think that that practice is probably typical of most trusts and states lawyers. You know, while, while there are a lot of attorneys who dabble in this area and will do a quickie will, most of us who are in this field exclusively or predominantly have a practice that is very similar to that. Mm-hmm. Do you have any uh, uh, tips of maybe things that when they they think should kind of prepare for ahead of time, you know, maybe things they should think of, like you were mentioning, oh, who do I want as the executor? Mm-hmm. Now, is there things that they could be kind of uh, getting together before they come and see you or might make the process a little bit easier? Sure. I mean, you know, and it's not always necessarily me. It's any trust in the state's attorney. I right, imagine right. you have <laughs> listeners all across the country. But uh, to me, what I'm looking for is I'd like to know about their prior planning, whether it's a will or a trust or a power of attorney or a healthcare proxy. It's helpful if they bring those sorts of documents into me. It's helpful if they have a, a mental list of, of the assets. A lot of lawyers give out questionnaires. I'm not big on questionnaires yeah. because I like to keep things conversational. Yeah. And also, I, I don't want clients writing out long account numbers because I sure. want to make sure their privacy is protected. Yeah, but, you know, they, they should basically know how much they have in the bank, whether they own their accounts solely or joint with a spouse, partner, or child. Yeah. Um, they should know who are the beneficiaries on their life insurance policy or their retirement accounts. And, 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 and they should know who their next of kin are. Whether or not they're choosing to include their next of kin, either exclusively, partially, or not at all, is up to them. But what, but them knowing the nature and extent of their assets and what we call the natural objects of their bounty mm. is necessary to show that they have testamentary capacity, which is a fancy $10 legal term that says you have the capacity to sign up. Right. Right. <laughs> right. You know, it's sort of interesting. I bet, Kevin, that you, you deal with beneficiary designation forms quite a lot in yeah, your field. I have. You know, that's always the biggest surprise to some of my clients that I'm asking them who are the beneficiaries on their retirement accounts. And a lot of times the question is maybe this person, maybe that person. Um, for example, it's not uncommon for a 40 year old married client to say they don't know, and then to go back and check, and it is their, their parents. And now they wish to include their spouse with their children as the alternate. Every now and then, they will pull those beneficiary designation forms, and they'll find even worse an X, right? An <laughs> ex-spouse or an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend Oops. or ex-partner. <laughs> and it's very difficult to deal with those things, yeah, you know, especially yeah. after someone dies. Right. You know, it's it's very important. I always tell people every two or three years, 
just look at the beneficiary designation form. Call the company, log on to their website, uh, request a letter from their correspondence department. Just make sure that beneficiary is who you think it is. And of course, if you have clients that have a lot of stacked, accumulated IRA from this employer, IRA from this employer, oh. IRA for this employer, to the extent that they can consolidate them with a company like yours, Kevin, is um, something that makes their life easier, makes right. these beneficiary designations a lot less likely to fall through the cracks. Right. Good, good point. Yeah. That is very important. Maybe something people don't think about too often. So l let me tell you about some of the um, things that I ask in the course of a estate planning interview that sometimes people aren't uh, fully prepared for. And again, these aren't things that I'm doing to uh, shock anybody, but it's just practical things. The first thing we often talk about is what happens to their dead body. And as a trust right. and estates attorney, <laughs> I like talking about dead bodies a whole lot more than other people. Uh, not, uh, not in a morbid way, but it's just something that comes up in the nature of my practice. Right. right? What sorts of things am I looking to ask them? You know, we start with a very simple question like, do you want to be buried or cremated? For those people who want to be buried, uh, where do you want to be buried? Have you already purchased a plot or do you want to direct your executor to purchase a plot located within a certain cemetery? Do you have certain religious beliefs that are important to you in the preparation or the timing of the burial? You know, that's something that's very important for a lot of people. When it comes to cremation, there are all the same sort of question. If you're cremated, who gets your ashes? Um, uh, and yeah. Do you wish to divide them among certain people? It's also interesting to note that the timing of the cremation is important. For example, some people want an open casket sort of wake or viewing memorial that would involve them uh, being embalmed. Right. Once you do that, you're talking about a lot of funeral parlor expenses, followed by a cremation of your embalmed body. I right. find that fewer and fewer people want that these days. More or less now, people want what's called a direct cremation with no embalming. But again, this is a personal decision that everyone is a little bit different on. We also have conversations about uh, organ and cadaver donation. Again, uh -huh. more dead bodies and things that we talk about. <laughs> uh, do you want to be an organ donor or do you want to be a cadaver donor, which is the opportunity that people have to donate their cadaver to a medical school, yeah. which is interesting because a lot of people feel like they don't want to spend a lot of money on the funeral. They would rather give the money to their beneficiaries, regardless of whether you're talking a $20,000 estate or a $20 million estate. A lot of people feel that way. Leaving one's cadaver to a medical school means that the medical school will pay the undertaking costs, will allow students to work on the cadaver for scientific purposes for up to two years, after which the medical school will cremate at their own expense. And they will do one of three things uh, with the ashes. First, they will give them to anyone that the donor designates in advance. Second, they will scatter them at sea at their own expense and give anyone that the donor designates in advance a certificate saying that they've done that. Or four, they will bury them or place them in a niche that the school maintains at their own expense. 
And regardless of which of the three outcomes, the school has a ceremony that they invite all the donors, family, and friends to, or the medical oh, wow. students attend. And they talk to, um, and they talk about how these donations uh, really impacted their education and research. So it's a very, very powerful thing. Yeah, wow, that is. That's... Most people are not uh, prepared for me to talk about uh, them donating their cadaver to a medical <laughs> school as they sit down here. So that's one of the things I ask that uh, surprises them. Another, th- another thing that uh, comes up quite a bit is pets. Right. If they have a pet, uh, I'm a dog person. A lot of my clients have uh, dogs and cats and uh, some more exotic or interesting animals. I seem to have a lot of octogenarians who decide to adopt these 80 year olds, uh, or excuse me, uh, who decide to adopt these uh, African gray parrots that live for 80 or 90 years. So we're talking about what to do with the with the animal. And in that situation, we have to have a conversation. Who's going to take the animal? Do they even want the animal? Is there a charity that's willing to take the animal, like a no-kill shelter? And, you know, do you also want to make a donation or a zoo, depending on the nature of the animal? You know, here here in the city of New York, the most zoo-quality animals are not things we should be keeping in our apartments. But, <laughs> but, but every now and then you hear a funny story of an interesting animal found skulking around Central Park, uh, like an alligator or a boa constrictor or things like that. So you never really know what's going what's gonna to turn up there. But, you know, there, there are those practical questions. Who gets the animal and do you want to give the person who takes the animal some money for their care? Because as most pet owners know, there is a fair amount of, of funds that are required sure. to maintain an animal. Especially if they get sick. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if they get sick or if they need an operation or, yeah. you know, pet food, dog sitting, I mean, yeah. all those things. Yeah. And really become quite expensive. The other thing, and I'll make this the last thing that clients aren't necessarily prepared for, is that a goodwill addresses a lot of contingencies. Meaning, what happens if those closest to you die before you? We in the trust and estates community call this parade of horribles. Right. Right? It's not fun talking to a client and asking, who would get your money if your spouse died before you? Or if your teenage children died before you? It's not a fun conversation to have, but it's a practical conversation. Right, to have. right. Yeah, that's something that it may not even cross some people's minds when they think about. Oh, of course, I'm. You know, my kids are going to outlive me. Of course, they're not even thinking about it. I can imagine some people could be resistant to that conversation to begin with. Usually, they're surprised, but then they understand the practicality. Of it. Right, right. To me, the way I explain it is: look, if every time you have a change in your life, you have to come in and pay a lawyer money to write to rewrite your will. That's great for the lawyer, but not great for you. True. And if you lose someone in your life, after a time you lose capacity, you might be foreclosed from doing that. Example, I leave everything to my spouse, period. If I die at a time when I have dementia and I lose capacity to sign a new will, I'm no longer able to correct that, which is a problem and a concern. Right, of course. Mm -hmm. Do do people often find other family members or... Do they find maybe charities or something? Usually a combination of both. You know, usually there are primary family members who may be biological family or really close friends, what I would call family of choice. And then then they may come up with a backup beneficiary. But always at the end of the day, there is a charity that you can leave money to. 
Um, charities are always happy to receive money as, as you know, should be a surprise to absolutely nobody. And you, <laughs> right. you don't have to worry about a charity dying the same way that a person does. Although every now and then a charity goes out of business, which presents its own issues. Right, right. So if it's a very specific charity that could be an issue, but some of the larger ones tend to stay around like, um, an animal person also. I like the SPCA. That one's probably not going away anytime soon. Right. I mean, it's always sort of interesting because sometimes charities change their charitable mission. The classic example of this is the March of Dimes. It's a right. charity everyone's heard of that was actually created to uh, help find a cure for polio. Guess what? They were so successful that they did it. So now they are <laughs> focusing on other types of diseases. You know, they right. changed their charitable mission. Every now and then, you'll see a disaster of a case. For example, a um, you leave money to a hospital that has personal meaning to you. Maybe you were a patient there, or right. a loved one passed there, and they were really provided excellent care. Right. And the hospital's presently a nonprofit, but then it goes private and is taken over by a medical conglomerate. And all of a sudden, your will is leaving money to a for-profit corporation. Yeah. Right? So I always tell people, like those beneficiary designation forms, every two, three years, take your will out of the draw, dust it off, and look at it. Is there a way for people to write something in that, if something like that happened, if they leave it to someone that's like, if this happens, mm -hmm. then I prefer this to happen instead. Like, sure. if I left it to a charity and then they... they like a hospital and they became a for-profit, then I preferred to go to something else. Yeah, I mean, normally what you can write in a will if you wanted to is that you're intending to make these as charitable requests mm -hmm. and you are intending to um, benefit the charitable missions that these organizations have at the time that you wrote your will and you authorize your executor to substitute them with another if their charitable mission changes. Again, you're talking about something that happens a very small percentage of the time, and the executor exercising that sort of discretion would largely involve a court proceeding because the charity or their successors in interest may have something to say about it. Do you have any wealth tactic rebels here? Do you have any tips that maybe some of our listeners could use themselves that maybe would save them some, some legal money. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, th there's certain things under the ambit of the law that you can do on your own. One of them is a healthcare proxy or a medical directive. Most states' Department of Healths have a website that includes a free healthcare decision-making form with instructions as a fill-in-the-blank. I think this is a great thing for um, everyone to have because it's very important and it's not something that you need a lawyer to do. Right. Many states also make their powers of attorney available online. That document does not necessarily need a lawyer, but I always tell clients whenever they sign any document without a lawyer, make sure that they understand what they're signing and read a little bit online about it somewhere else other than where you're buying the form. So you understand what the issues and shortfalls of the documents may be and how to execute it properly because it's good. The other thing that I tell people who want to save a few dollars is be realistic when you're writing your estate plan. A lot of times I will see people write wills that 
just are inviting litigation after they die, right. which, you know, could cost tens of thousands of dollars. I'm usually pretty good at talking my clients out of doing that, but every now and then a client will do something on their own or with a lawyer who doesn't, who doesn't really focus in this field. And um, it's, important to, it's important to note that there are some things that may become litigious. Examples, defaming someone in your will is not such a good idea, right? If you decide to, to uh, disinherit one of your family members, please do not write a two-page diatribe in your will about why they are being disinherited. Because first, it goes to your capacity if any portion of it is not true. Second, the will contest becomes about whether or not that's true. It's funny, I, I've picked yeah. a jury for a will contest, and unlike regular jury duty, when everyone is trying to get out of jury duty, jurors want to serve on these will contests. I did one in Brooklyn last summer, and when we were excusing jurors, they just looked crestfallen because they really, really wanted to hear why this woman disinherited some of her family members. <laughs> um, it was a very unique experience. <laughs> it is neat. Um, it's like a live drama yeah. show for them. Be realistic about who your executors are and whether or not the executors can get along with the beneficiaries. A fair amount of most trust and estates litigators' business are parents who are real unrealistic about their adult children. Mm. You know, if mom is 80 and she has kids who are in uh, their late 50s, early 60s, and they may be very accomplished professionals, but they haven't spoken in 30 years, right. right? If mom writes a will naming them as co-executors saying that, oh, they'll finally learn to love each other and get along, that is a recipe for disaster, <laughs> right? Also be realistic about whether or not certain people are going to challenge the will. Right. Have a conversation with your lawyer about who is entitled to challenge the will under the laws of your state. and say, look, is there anything that can be done to stave off a contest? Right. For example, if I know someone is going to challenge the will, I may have the client sign the same will twice, one week apart. Why? Because the person who's challenging the will has to overcome two wills. If right. they overturn the one signed on November 30th, they're going to have to come back to the one signed on November 15th that says exactly the same thing. Right. It makes it a lot harder. If you're anticipating a challenge, make sure that your executor or your family has other money available to them, such as money through a life insurance policy or a retirement account that they can have immediately to support themselves or defend the um, will challenge while the challenge proceeds through the court, which could take a long time. Yeah. Thomas, you've given a lot of... Uh very valuable information, I think, to our listeners so far, you know, give them a better, much better idea of what they can expect when they come in to do estate planning or write their wills and, and whatnot, as well as some very good tips here. Um, you have any other closing comments you'd like to mention to the to our Wealth Tactic Rebels about this? You know, I always give people a lot of credit for thinking about their estate plan, yeah. because to me, it is one of the most selfless things that a person can do. You're, you're planning for yourself, yes, but the people who are benefiting it are others, your spouse, true, your true. children, charities, uh, putting things in order so you're not leaving a mess. 
is 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 a wonderful thing, and it really is a selfless act. It's not something that everyone looks forward to, but I give right. people a lot of credit to do it. But it's something that can't be done in a bubble. I always tell my clients, look, not only do you need to talk to me, but you need to talk to your financial advisors about this as well. Right. Make sure those beneficiary designation forms complement what I'm writing in the will. And sometimes it's worthwhile to have an overall meeting. You can't put too much work into it. Well, thank you very much, Thomas. I really appreciate your time today, um, and I know our wealth tax preppers appreciate it as well. So, thank you so much. We're going to put Thomas's information, his contact information, if you want to reach out to him, in our show notes page for again, it's Siaka Law, Thomas Siaka Law, and you can go to the wealthtacticrebels.com, and you can go to our Thomas Siaka interview, and uh, his information will be there. Also, while you're on our wealthtacticrebels.com website, you can Download our free guide to the three key areas that you could be losing money unknowingly and unnecessarily. Well, thank you again, Thomas. I really appreciate your time. Sure. Thanks for having me. And uh, thank you for listening today, Wealth of Rebels, and have a fantastic day. Want to really see things differently? Take our course in Genius Tactics 201, where we teach you all the wealth accumulating tactics with detailed real-life examples See your progress with quizzes and a certificate of completion. For course details, visit WealthTacticRebels.com. Sign up today and start seeing things differently. This presentation is intended as informational only. Information presented does not consider your particular financial objectives, risk tolerance, time horizon, or other unique circumstances, and does not constitute a personalized recommendation or replace the advice of a financial, tax, or legal advisor or other qualified professionals. Do your own research and do not use the information of this presentation in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional. To the best of our ability, we provide content that is accurate as of the date of release. However, we give no assurance or guarantee regarding its accuracy, timeliness, completeness, or applicability. We assume no liability for the information of this and related presentations.